Hi, this is Howard Jacobson, and I am thrilled to have on the line today Brendan Brazier of Thrive, Thrive All Sorts of Things. Hello, Brendan. Hey, Howard. Hey. So uh, we, we, we met in New York uh, last month or a couple of months ago, and um, I've known about you for a long time. Um, and for just for, for folks who, uh, who aren't familiar with you and your story, if you could kind of just give us a... Uh, a quick version of how you got into plant-based nutrition, because it's it's kind of different than most other most other people. You took a very sort of scientific approach to come come up with your optimal diet. Right. Yeah, I started off back in 1990 when I was running track in high school, and I wanted to be a better track athlete. And ultimately, I wanted to race professionally as um, as a track athlete. And I realized that I also like swimming and cycling, so I thought, well. Maybe I could do a triathlon and make that a full-time career. And when I was looking at what the top pros did for, for training, the top Ironman guys, I found it really didn't differ that much from the average athlete's training program. Um, so, of course, I asked myself, well, it's not just the training that separates the average um, from the top. Then, then how is it that some guys rise um, to, to be the best while others just stay average when they do pretty much the same training? And I found it had to do with recovery. There, rate at which you can get your body to regenerate and renew itself after a workout. So my focus went on recovery because, of course, I knew that if I could get recovery to, to happen quicker, I could train more in less time, which would, have, of course, mean I would improve faster. So my motivation was really just because I wanted a career as an athlete, and, um, and I just thought that would be an advantage if I, if I learned how to recover fast, and I found out pretty quick that nutrition played a huge part in recovery, so that's what got me into it. Okay. And but yet, you know, most most athletes know what to eat, and they what they know is lots of protein, lots of animal products. Um, you know, how how did you not get caught up in in that kind of dogma? Did you try it for yourself? Did you you know did you go straight to plant based? or Did you try the tra- more traditional routes? Yeah, I tried more traditional routes at first, and as you can imagine, there is quite a bit of resistance um, against straying too far from the norm, uh, you know, from coaches and parents and uh, people like that. But um, I I did a lot of trial and error. I kept a really tight training journal and nutrition log, so I was able to see variances pretty easily. Um, And then when things were working, I would go with it, and if something wasn't, I would make some tweaks. So um, it was really a lot of trial and error. In the beginning, and then um, and then I developed that uh, template essentially that would get me to uh, the good performance. And I developed a set of nutrition principles that seemed to kind of be uh, be sort of the constant that I found. But yeah, at first plant based didn't work for me at all because I was I was hungry all the time. I was tired. I wasn't recovering well. I, I simply loaded up on a lot of starchy, refined foods. I wasn't really eating a lot of whole foods, very few vegetables, and I was kind of going about it the wrong way. So. Once I learned how to do that properly, I noticed um, a pretty pretty good shift. But it did take a while. It's probably a year and a half it took before I felt really good. But um, I saw a gradual improvement, so I, I stuck with it. Got it. So, so what I think what you've what you came up with, you define in a, in a very elegant phrase, which is high net gain foods. And so, someone else doesn't have to go through a year and a half of trial and error. One, I think once you understood this principle, you were able to choose food very wisely uh, without having to think a lot. Can you can you talk about what what a high net gain food is and compare it to uh, to a, a low net gain food? Sure. So I was in the, 
I guess the trap, as a lot of people are, as you mentioned, especially athletes, of believing that because a calorie is a measure of food energy, the more calories you eat, the more energy you'll have. And that's really kind of what's followed through um, conventional sports nutrition books. They say if you burn a 1,000 calories when you're working out, you got to take in at least a 1,000 calories to replenish that. But so we know all calories are not created equal, and it's, a lot of people don't seem to, to realize that. And for example, if you go and eat a 3,000 calorie fast food meal, you don't have a lot of energy right after. In fact, you get really tired. So um, I knew there's something more to it than just that. And I, I found that if you could choose foods that took less digestive energy but returned more nutrition, so less energy out, more nutrition in, that was going to be an advantage. That was going to be a, an efficiency. So I swapped out a lot of starchy refined foods um, and started eating more things like pseudo-grains, amaranth, quinoa, buckwheat, wild rice, so things that are technically seeds but often referred to as grains, um, things like also hemp and flax and chia, uh, chlorella, maca, all types of good foods that um, weren't part of my diet before that, and I found that they did digest much more easily, so spending less energy, so of course energy is like anything, if you don't spend it, you still have it, and I was getting more nutrition in, so um, of course... Uh, when you can get more micronutrients in with fewer calories, then that's going to be an advantage. And micronutrients, of course, are vitamins, minerals, phytochemicals, antioxidants. So less energy to get more of that, and that's that's going to be an advantage. And it certainly was. I, I found it, it really helped a lot. Great. Yeah. When I when I read that in your book about the you know eat a, eat a giant cheeseburger fast food meal, and does that give you a lot more energy? You know, it just it really hit me in the face, like how stupid that is to to equate those two kinds of energy, but but we are, we are really talking about different sorts of energy. The energy you're talking about, I think, is much more sort of, you know, liquid, to use a financial term, like it's money in your pocket, as opposed to the, time, the kind of energy you get from a fast food meal, which is stored as fat. Do you, do you think about different kinds of energy that way? Is, is that a useful distinction? Yeah, I think it is, and I think that that does make sense, and yeah, I sometimes put it into financial terms too, and in uh, in terms of an investment, you know, you you want to um, invest in something; it's it's got to give you a return. And when you eat something that takes a lot of energy to digest and assimilate, yet gives you very few nutrients back, that's not a good investment. That's a low yield investment. So if you're going to spend that digestive energy, it, uh, it better be worthwhile because you've only got a finite amount of energy, and it just comes down to efficiency. Where are you going to spend it? And, yeah, I think that absolutely the energy um, that you can use right away as opposed to having it stored as fat, like you said, and I think that's a good way to put it, but that, uh, that's obviously going to make a lot more sense. The last thing you want to do is be storing your energy as fat. You want to burn it right away. So that, that definitely makes sense. Right. So w- one of the things you really um, focus on a lot in your books um, which are you know largely nutritionally based books, so I was surprised to find it is the concept of stress and cortisol, and you spoke about that when i when I heard you speak what's the what's the connection between your interest in nutrition and your you're talking about stress and cortisol levels and and the effects uh, that, those effects on recovery and on health in general Well, it's really a personal story for me when I was training full time I was training thirty five forty hours a week and um I started showing symptoms of stress, so high cortisol levels um, I tested for, um, meaning that the stress hormone cortisol is is elevated. When that's elevated, 
you're essentially hormonally injured, and that was a term an endocrinologist used with me. He said, you've got this hormonal injury. What's happened is you play so much physical stress from training, at the time overtraining in my body, that cortisol went up, which means you don't get into that deep delta phase of sleep, so you don't sleep as efficiently. You wake up, you're tired, you crave coffee and sugar. So then you become um, wanting to stimulate yourself and getting that energy that's uh, the short term, and it's not sustainable, and you burn your adrenals out further. So I realized that I really had to get my adrenals in check, uh, bring down cortisol, bring down stress if I was going to not be dependent on stimulants like caffeine and sugar that so many people are, of course. And I realized that stress is stress. doesn't matter where it comes from. It can be overtraining, which with my stress, it can be a lot of work, not enough downtime. It can be family concerns or worries or the environmental, breathing polluted air, or it can be food, you know, eating low-quality food that takes a lot of energy from you and, and gives you very few nutrients in return is a form of nutritional stress, which, of course, adds to your overall stress. And we all have a stress threshold. And when when that spills over, then cortisol goes too high and you get that, that hormonal injury, which also, by the way, when that's too high, it's very difficult to tone muscle and to lose fat. So a lot of people actually... You know, they, they exercise on a regular basis, but they can't lose the last 5 to 10 pounds or they can't change their body shape because they don't have the hormonal makeup to do that. And I realize that uh, there, there are different types of stress, but they have the same effect. So complementary stress, as I say in the book, is the sort of stress that's actually not a bad thing because you get something in return. If you work hard, of course, sure, your cortisol may go up, but then you've achieved something. You've got a project finished or, or whatever it is you're working on. Um, training, of course, you get a greater level of fitness. So there's a trade-off. Whereas low-quality nutrition, there's no trade-off. So that's uncomplimentary stress. You get nothing in return for eating these low-quality foods. So you can lower your stress threshold by just cleaning up your diet and still being extremely productive and even more productive. Um, So you can train more as an athlete before you reach that stress threshold, which is going to be a big advantage. And if even if you're not an athlete, just working hard, you're, you're actually going to be able to work more before you you reach that threshold if you really clean up your diet. So a lot of high achievers, a lot of you know, busy people who are trying to get a lot done, um, you know, uh, really kind of connect with that. I've, I've spoken at Google before, too. Of course, a lot of, you know, really high-achieving, busy people there, and and I, that seemed to make sense to them, too. And they, they acknowledged that, you know, when they started eating better, they, they were able to work more and be more productive. So there's some pretty uh, pretty universal advantages to uh to this way of eating for sure yeah and i was i was struck by you know that that stress is a big issue and it's got a lot of complicated components to it your thoughts your emotions your your responses and a lot of those you know you could you could spend your life trying to get your thoughts better and to improve your 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 mental responses and nutrition is just such a low-hanging fruit in terms of you, you don't have to be that smart or you know, devote that much time to just improving the way you eat. And it struck me it's, it's pretty much the same thing. You have a chapter in, in the original Thrive about the environment. And, you know, if you think about our, the, the environment of planet Earth and, and deg- environmental degradation and global warming and wars and poverty and all these terrible things, it, it turns out that I think nutrition – plays the same role there in that it's this this really obvious sort of low-hanging fruit that makes so many things better just all by itself. And I'm, I'm, I'm wondering what are, your, what are your thoughts about sort of the primacy of nutrition as a, as a first step in handling pretty much any problem? Yeah, I agree. I think it's kind of the base, you know, the base of 
in the Western world, I guess, what you could call success. Of course, I, I know a lot of people who don't eat very well and they're, they're pretty successful, but I think they could be more successful uh, if they did have that covered off. You know, uh, greater quality of sleep, therefore, the quantity will go down so you can get five or six hours of sleep and feel great because you slept so efficiently. Just even that. And then, of course, you mentioned the environment. Of course, that's a huge one, too, when you choose to eat foods that have use less of each natural resource to produce. So in my more recent book, it's called Try Foods, I look at the amount of land, water, and fossil fuel it takes to create food. And when I say food, I'm not talking about um, volume of food or calories. I'm talking about nutrients, so vitamins, minerals, phytochemicals, antioxidants. And I developed something I call the nutrient-to-resource ratio, which just is just basically that. It's like, how can we get the most amount of nutrition while expending the least amount of each natural resource to do so? And and that, I think, is what we need to look at now with, uh, you know, with the 7 billion people we got on Earth. And I think we really have to be mindful of, of being efficient um, and, and not, uh, you know, not just being so wasteful as we have in the past and, and not getting as much out of the, the crops as we can. And, of course, you know, even the UN for a while was talking about how genetic, genetic modification was good because you grow more crops on, on less land um, or more, create more volume of food on less land. It, Volume of food isn't necessarily correlated with the amount of nutrition. There's only a finite amount of minerals in the soil, so you can only get so much nutrition out of one plot of land, and to grow more food on that just means uh, food with lower nutrient density, really. So then that creates another problem, which is overconsumption, because people are hungry, because uh, they don't have enough nutrition in the food, and then they become overfed yet undernourished, which is you know now the new norm in North America, unfortunately. So it's... Uh, it's not just about volume of food, of course, as you know. It's you know, it's about the the quality, about the nutrition. So, I, I agree. I think addressing the food issue is um, is a primary thing that us us humans could be spending time and resources doing for sure. Right. So I'm curious, you know, um, given that you, you're, I, mean, I think, you know, that I love that section in, in Thrive Foods where you're, you're showing all the pictures of how far you'd have to drive to uh, to compensate for different food choices. But you know, you've really become um, a kind of an activist, someone someone with a mission. You started out just trying to find the best way to eat for yourself so you could win races and have a successful um, triathlon career. When when did that shift? When did you start? seeing yourself and, and acting like um, kind of a person on a mission? Well, yeah, I mean, that's exactly it. I started off, and it was actually an extremely selfish um, mission I was on. It was just so that I could could perform better, and I, I'd really not given any thought to it more holistically and how maybe um, other people could benefit. But then I started looking at, um, well, a few things happened. One, I was invited to speak at a few vegetarian conferences as a, as a vegan athlete, and so I, I saw some great speakers who spoke about the environment. I got really interested in how food affected the environment and, and efficiencies, and, um, and I started to realize, you know, we're, we're very fortunate, us who can actually eat each day. You know, there's a large population, a very large percentage of, of the world's population that actually doesn't get to eat on a regular basis. So I think with the privilege of being able to eat every day, there needs to be some sense of responsibility. So I think making informed choices as to what we're going to eat is is a good approach. So, for example, uh, if you choose to eat a food that was produced by using an inordinate amount of land, water, fossil fuel, and create a lot of CO2 equivalent emissions, uh, you know, maybe that's not such a good choice. And 
ignorance is a good excuse because this information is not readily available. So I want to make it more available so people can have um, have a choice and, and and make an informed choice and and basically vote for the sort of system they want to see in place, which I'm assuming would be a more efficient one that's better for everyone and more of a, a social way of looking at eating. I think, you know, like I was saying before, 7 billion people on Earth, we kind of have to think socially when we make those food decisions because it does affect so many people um, in so many ways. So I, I just got interested in that aspect of food and how how uh, it really was a, kind of a common bond of all of us and and transparency. You know, really in, in that book, Try Foods, more than a case for plant-based nutrition, I make the case for transparency. I just think that, that we need to know um, the, the process that it, it takes to get food on our plate and uh, what systems are involved with that and then what are we going to vote for? What, uh, what system do we feel is, is uh, the best one for all of us? So, yeah, I'm a big advocate of transparency. I think there should be school classes that uh, you know, teach kids where food comes from and Sure, you know the, the day that everyone goes to the slaughterhouse to, to see what that's like. I'm sure a lot of kids would become vegan, but that's not with any kind of slant or any kind of anything other than just full transparency. And to to shield people from that um, and say it's for their own good, I, I think is is a really weak argument. I, I really think that that when we have this, this great fortune of choosing what to eat, we should we should be informed of of what we are actually choosing. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think your framing is so clever, and it's you know it's quite different from the way a lot of the plant-based and especially sort of ethical vegan community talks about it. You know, who who in the world could be against efficiency, um, and and who could be against transparency? So right. you know, so I love that you're you're not pushing the conclusion they should come to, but simply uh, encouraging us to get all the facts and then let allow us to make our own conclusions and having faith. That you know, that we we need the truth more than the truth needs us. Yeah, yeah, and I, you know, I'm just someone who wants, um, yeah, want wants what I think a lot of other people want, but I, I think sometimes they don't make that connection to food. And and recently, I'm sure you're aware, Bill Gates has got really interested in food production and looking at more efficient ways to produce protein for uh, for, for the world in, in general. And it's really interesting to see some of his thoughts. And of course, he comes at it from a a completely scientific uh, angle and, of course, finds the same thing. You know, if we can produce protein while expending less of each natural resource, that's going to be a big advantage. And so, of course, he's gotten really into uh, into looking at ways to do that more efficiently. And, of course, they're all plant-based, but that's, that's how you do it efficiently. So it, it is interesting to see uh, when people like that get into it because you know that it's um, – it's it's sort of his motivation is probably different to a lot of other people's motivations who get into it. So it's it's nice to see. Mm-hmm. Right. So I know you have to you have to run. I just wanted to ask you um, about some of the products that you you have in the marketplace. I'm naturally suspicious of anything that's a supplement, having um, contributed to the book Whole. Can you t- tell me a little bit about um, about I don't know if you pronounce it Vega or Vega. Yeah, Vega. Yep. Vega. So, um, how is that, you know, d- different from the other kinds of supplements that you'd find at, you know, GNC or or bodybuilders or or triathletes would use? Can you talk a little bit about your your philosophy and and what went into making that product a uh, a, a food you can thrive on? Right. Yeah. So Vega One is the main product 
and it's um, it's basically it's protein, essential fats, fiber, greens, enzymes, probiotics. So it was something I was making for myself years ago. I started making a really crude version back when I was around 15 and just getting into this. And I found that as an athlete, expending a lot of energy and, and needing um, you know some some good fuel in there, I found that uh, blending things up really really seemed to help. Uh, getting hemp protein, pea protein, rice protein, flax, chlorella. Uh, all these things and just just blending it um, just helped my recovery quite a lot. Um, of course, it was very easy to digest, so I spent very little digestive energy, yet I got a lot of nutrition in. And um, you know, I, I think athletes can benefit from something like this even more than the average person. But I do think that you know, an average busy person um, can can benefit from from good nutrition like this. And I think that. Uh, you know, of course, most people who buy Vega, they're not vegetarian, they're not vegan, they probably never will be, but they are health-conscious, busy people. And I think that, you know, just it makes it more approachable. It makes it easier for people to have have a smoothie that tastes good uh, as, as a first step into eating plant-based, whether they go further or not. Um, you know, most do because they feel so good, so they, they want to. But I think it's just, you know, it makes it convenient. And, yeah, in a perfect world, I think everyone would would grow their own food and have zero food miles and uh, just eat out of their garden. And, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate I, I'm able to grow uh, a fair bit of my own food, so I like to do that. But I know that it's not realistic for a lot of people, and I think having something that's really convenient and tastes good um, is is a benefit and, and can help transition people over. So it's, it's good for that. But also, yeah, as an athlete, you know, I think... Um, so, for example, I'll use agave nectar as an example, but it could be maple syrup. It could be any kind of concentrated form of carbohydrate, essentially. And the average person really doesn't need that. The average person gets plenty of carbs just from eating, you know, whole fruit and vegetables and things like that. But when you're an athlete and doing a lot of cycling and running, you actually want to try and get as much carbohydrate in a small amount of volume as you can in because then you... Uh, it's going to be easier to digest, easier to assimilate, and you burn through carbs so quickly when your muscles are working. So during an Ironman or really long bike ride, I find things that are um, concentrated and distilled like that really help. Because if I just try and get enough carbs through bananas, for example, or or another fruit, I find the volume um, that I need to take in to to keep up with the amount I'm burning is uh, is quite likely going to lead to some stomach issues, digestive issues, or just even not be possible to to get enough in. Um, so obviously, you know, that's more of um, an athlete-specific thing, but that's something I find uh, that, that does help a lot. But again, uh, it's not something I would suggest people just sit down and, you know, put a bunch of agave nectar in their tea before they go to bed. They simply don't need the carbs then because, of course, carbs are fuel. But I think when you look at sweeteners like that, that's two different things. One is a sweetener, and then one is a functional carbohydrate. So... Um, I think that's important too to realize the difference between uh, a functional carb and and a sweetener as well, and and I sometimes get asked about that. So, uh, yeah, I think you know each thing has its place, and if you're an athlete, some of these um, things that I guess are a little less whole can actually have their their place just because of the nature of of sport. Mm-hmm. And I and I appreciate you know the way you you market and talk about your products and that, you know, there's, there's so much hype around sports nutrition and so many people are claiming that without their product, you can't do X, Y, or Z. You can't build this muscle. You can't have the stamina. And there's some sort of magic formula. And you're really transparent about what's in it, about the fact that you could cobble together your own, that you're really selling a type of, 
of expertise and convenience as opposed to some sort of magic formula. So I'm, I'm, I really appreciate the integrity behind that messaging. Well, thanks. Yeah, I appreciate it. And that's something I've always been uh, very, very big on is, of course, again, coming back to transparency. And yeah, absolutely. You can, you know, you can make Vega yourself. I did it for years. And it is a convenience that, that we're providing as opposed to like a proprietary formula. You know, we'll never say proprietary formula. Like I'll give people the recipe. Um, I'll give people the, the formula, you know, and other companies are so protective of that. And that's clear that they then have their company's self-interest ahead of the communities and ahead of the people who may be buying it, which I think is, I mean, I don't even know how those companies can, can justify that. I mean, who who are you trying to make this for? Are you just trying to, like, you know, be secret about what it is and, and make and just sell a lot and not have people copy you? I want people to copy us. I want more uh, people to have this, this sort of thing available to them. So the more people who do, or companies who do similar things, I think it's great. It just it just makes it easier for everyone to, to get some, some good convenient food. Right. Well, I, I did get surprised when I, I went through the, some of the recipes and costed them out, and I found that just buying your product was actually cheaper than, uh, than buying all the ingredients. So I guess you, uh, you have efficiencies of scale and and production that uh, that that will keep you in business even uh, even for us hackers. Well, that's exactly it. When you're you're buying the individual ingredients, you're paying markup on each one. There's the extra packaging, and then of course we can buy it in big volume because um, you know we buy so much of it, then the price goes down, and we can pass that on. So yeah, it does work out to be cheaper for sure. Well, I know you've got to run. Um, I have a million more questions. Maybe we'll get to some other time. But for right now, Brendan Brazier, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. You're welcome, Howard. And, and you can let people know, too, that there's um, a free web series that I've put together. It's called Drive Forward. So just the website is driveforward.com. A bunch of recipes, a bunch of downloads, uh, about 40 videos. Uh, really um, just a good resource. It's basically my book through video. So if people learn better visually, um, you know, they can they can certainly sign up, like I say, it's all free and and can uh yeah, go go through that or pass it on to friends or whoever they think it might be useful for. Awesome. Thriveforward.com. I'll put a link to that uh, in this podcast. Um, I, will, I will also say that I am slowly going through the recipes for the the frozen bars um, from from Thrive, the original book, and Loving them, and um, sometimes I have to make double batches and hide them in the recesses of the freezer because my kids are discovering them. Um, so the, you know, there's a lot of great recipes in this in these three books: Thrive, Thrive Fitness, and Thrive Foods. And uh, and I have been using the uh, the Vega One chocolate powder for about two weeks, and so I don't have enough information to say anything. Uh, Specific yet, but it, cer- it certainly makes the shakes taste better. <laughs> I, will, I will say that. Well, that's and, a good start. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, I'm 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 a, an experimenter. I'm a work in progress. So uh, I will I will be letting people know. But um, again, Brendan, thank you so much, and uh, we'll 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 be in touch and hopefully continue at some point. Okay, you're welcome. Thanks, Howard. Thanks for doing what you're doing and getting the word out there of good nutrition. Right on. I uh, do well. Okay, thanks. You too. Bye.